Welcome back to Pursuing Justice. I'm Harriet Hendel. We've been talking for the last few weeks about kids in our justice system, our criminal justice system to be exact. And we had Sarah Cruzon speak to us um, a couple of times. And now we have James Dold back again. He is the CEO and founder of Human Rights for Kids based in Washington. James, welcome back. Thank you, Harriet. It's a pleasure to be back with you. The last time you were here, we spoke about your organization, Human Rights for Kids, and its goals for children caught up in our criminal justice system. Um, it would I'd like you to tell us just a little about your former role at an organization that is one of my favorites, the Campaign for the Fair Sentencing of Youth. Um, and then of course you, you uh, left there and, and formed your own organization. Um, again, an organization that is so very much needed. Uh, what, what, what are they all about and what did you do when you worked there? Yeah, so the Campaign for the Fair Senate it's a really incredible organization, also based here in Washington, D.C. Uh, they are dedicated to exclusively to ending the practice of sentencing children to die in prison. And, you know, the I ended up there, you know, after Polaris Project, um, in large part thanks to Sarah's case. You know, um, Sarah's case is really what prompted me uh, to want to expand and, and work at the intersection a little bit more of, of kids who had been victims of abuse and neglect and, and harmed previously, who then ended up in the justice system. And the campaign was, you know, the national organization that was working to end this practice. And, um, you know, shortly before I joined them in 2013, um, the U.S. Supreme Court the prior year, 2012, had issued a seminal decision called Miller v. Alabama that had ruled that a life without parole sentences uh, were unconstitutional for the vast majority of children um, and really should be reserved for, you know, the, the uncommon or the rare juvenile who uh, demonstrated permanent corrigibility. And, uh, you know, at that time, uh, they were looking for an advocacy director that could come in and, and you know, really begin to change the legislative landscape. Now, in, two, you know, 2012 post Miller, it was it was it was a tough time. Um, there weren't a lot of states that had done anything, you know, truly transformative in the juvenile justice reform space. And even those states that had banned life without parole sentences, they didn't necessarily have, um, you know, good policies in place. And so my role coming on as their inaugural advocacy director uh, was to really figure out a way to, you know, generate these positive reforms. And that's what we did. I took what I had learned uh, and developed during my time at Polaris Project, um, working on a bipartisan basis to pass all these anti-human trafficking laws and took that same exact strategy and transposed it into uh, this space. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I was very proud of the work that we did there in, in a five-year period while I was there. We quadrupled the number of states that ban life without parole sentences for children. And so if you looked again at the people on our, our board, there's this through line of, you know, the work that I was doing at Polaris Project, fighting human trafficking to ending life without parole sentences. That's sort of the background of many of our board members in terms of the legislation they carried in their home states. Um, and, you know, these were states, you know, we're talking about pretty conservative states. So we were able to get places like South Dakota, North Dakota, uh, Utah, um, uh, uh, West Virginia, Arkansas, uh, 
um, to be national leaders in ending the practice of sentencing children to die in prison. And we got these bills passed by, you know, incredible margins. You know, most most of them were usually unanimous. And if we ever did have anybody vote against us, it was like one or two people in the state legislature. And then the same thing in the more liberal or democratically in states like Vermont and Hawaii, you know, that's exactly what we did. We just, you know, uh, created this bipartisan groundswell of bipartisan support um, and got these got these bills passed and you know for me wanting to transition from you know the work that I had done at Polaris and then at the campaign was really against the backdrop of, of recognizing that you know there were these other very vast human rights violations that were happening against kids in uh, the juvenile justice system outside of life without parole sentences that also needed to be prioritized right and that was the use of mandatory minimums against kids not having a minimum age by which we're prosecuting kids um, and it was kind of just sort of open season on children across the country and so uh, me forming human rights for kids um, was really kind of, you know, an offshoot of that, recognizing that there was this great need out there for another organization to kind of fill in the gaps of these other human rights violations that, that were happening. But yeah, the campaign, uh, they've done incredible work. I think it's been a model um, really for a lot of other social movements and, and how, you know, you can work on a very incredibly complex and difficult issue um, because the kids we're talking about too, just to be clear, these are kids convicted of murder, um, you know? And so, you know, uh, that for a lot of people that gives them pause even people who might be listening in and might be saying well, I don't know about these kids convicted of murder but when you really begin to peel back the layers of their life you begin to understand a couple of important things one is that these kids have gone through a hell that few people can even imagine or begin to imagine and the second thing is that they have shown incredible resilience when you come back and you meet them you know 15 20 years later uh, many, if not all of them, end up being completely different people, uh, completely transformed in, in spite of, you know, incredible obstacles uh, and, and, you know, doing incredible work while they've been incarcerated. Um, I always tell people some of the best people I know in my life uh, were convicted of murder. <laughs> and it's true, right? Like there's there's great example. If, you, if you're a religious person, right, um, whether, you know, you're Jewish or um, Christian or, or uh, Muslim, like the holy texts are full of examples of people who did terrible things, but then found salvation and went on to do incredible work. I always tell people, you know, Moses, David, and the apostle Paul were all murderers. <laughs> they were all murderers. Like you can't, you know, dispute that. That's a fact in the Bible. And yet, you know, we're incredible servants of God. David, matter of fact, was known as a man after God's own heart, you know? And so, you know, when we begin to look at the lessons in, the, in, in, in these biblical texts, it's, you know, it's very clear that this is also so, supposed to be the lessons that we take in our society. And, you know, and the other thing is, you know, uh, you know, God is closest to the brokenhearted, you know, the people in our society who are the most brokenhearted are the people who've been the most abused, the most broke down, and the people who often do the, the most terrible things too, right? And that's not to say that, you know, and I, I don't want people to think that, I, you know, I'm some naive, <laughs> <laughs> guy who's just like, I'll let everybody out because I also believe that there is evil in this world and that we do need to protect society from uh, harmful people, right? So it's not about saying we need to open the floodgates and like let everybody out of prison. We're not for abolishing prisons. We think that prisons and jails need to exist because there are dangerous people out there, even people who committed crimes as children, right? It's because you're a child when you committed your crime doesn't mean that you should necessarily be released from prison, but it does mean that we need to look at you differently in the justice system. And it does mean that we need to check back in on you 
to see who you've grown up and become later in life, regardless of what you've done. And that's how you properly balance protecting public safety with the need to treat children differently. And, and you know, that's that's a staple of the, the great work at, at our friends at the, uh, at the Campaign for the Fair Sentencing of Youth and what we're also trying to do at, at Human Rights for Kids in terms of uh, creating a, a better balance in our criminal justice system. I think, too, um, what we always want to keep in mind is that by locking up a child forever, you are saying, in essence, there's no second chance. You cannot be changed, rehabilitated, redeemed. And that isn't true. We know that. We know that. I, I was reading um, about other countries and, and what they do, and there's such a mix of how they treat children. But Germany stands out, um, and it said that a Germany never, ever tries a child as an adult, never. But there are not that many countries that match that. So, uh, you know, these are things that need changing. Um, we were talking uh, before about um, different cases. I'm familiar with some of, of the uh, high profile cases. I was writing to Sintoya Brown for many, many years before she was um, released by the governor of Tennessee. Um, can you maybe, um, uh, make more real the, these cases of children and things they did and what what has happened to them uh, in this country because I'm sure there are just many many cases of children who are young caught up in the justice system what what can you tell us yeah absolutely and and thank you for that question Harriet. and I'll I'll highlight a couple because I think that there's there's a few that really stand out to me that really demonstrate the, the the depth of the problem that we have in this country with a criminal justice system that's run amok and you know how we've really lost our way, uh, particularly as it relates to children. And it's very hard for us to be a country that is seen as a beacon of human rights, as a defender of human rights, when we're engaged in one of the worst violation against children's rights in the history of the world. Um, you know, it, you know, it's 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 really hard to to be that moral beacon when when you know other countries see what we do to children, and one example of that happened just a few years ago. And I'm not some of the cases I'm not going to reveal the, the child's name because they're still a child; they're underage. Media has protected their names, and so we won't we won't uh, reveal them. Others where the media has revealed their names, or because they've become public, like I'll 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 talk about that a little bit more. Um, but the the first case uh, there's and there's been a number of cases like this, particularly down in Florida. Uh, where we see five and six-year-old children uh, arrested and led away from their elementary schools in handcuffs. And, you know, remember, a five and six-year-old, we're talking about kindergartners and first graders. Um, and, you know, what were what those kids were arrested for and, and in some cases prosecuted for in the juvenile justice system uh, was essentially for throwing a temper tantrum, right? Um, getting upset, you know, throwing classroom um, materials, you know, sometimes hitting their teachers. And, you know, that's not to say that, you know, the kids should be hitting their teachers, but we're talking about a kindergartner and first grader um, that are throwing temper tantrums. And so uh, the, the problem is that, you know, we have created a criminal justice system response to every single thing that happens. And when you do that, you lose sight of the fact that 
no, there are more there are more in depth problems happening with this child that really should be addressed in the child welfare system in terms of treatment and services, um, and everything else that this child may be going through. Maybe they've lost a, a parent. Maybe one of their parents are, are locked up. You know, and that's oftentimes what we see is that the, the the children in these situations are living with their grandparents or they're living with another family member, right? So there's inherently already you know there's a little bit of instability in their home and family life. And yet, you know, we compound that by saying, you know, we're, we're, it's okay to arrest a child who's throwing a temper tantrum when they're five and six years old. Um, and that's happened numerous times in, in the state of Florida and other states, in part, again, because we don't have a minimum age uh, in these states by which we deem children even capable of uh, forming uh, criminal intent. Uh, we believe in our state ratings report, we've said that a minimum age must be 10 years of age. Um, if you're under the age of 10, you don't have the ability to form criminal intent. You cannot be arrested and you cannot be prosecuted for a crime. Anything that happens to children under the age of 10 should be dealt with exclusively within the child welfare system. Although, you know, international human rights law actually dictates that that age should even be older as well. Um, the International UN Committee on Human Rights says that that should be at least uh, 14 years of age. Um, for us, because of how bad, how far back the U.S. is, we're just trying to get people to 10. Like, let's stop uh, prosecuting and arresting uh, third and fourth graders. Uh, that's sort of <laughs> that's sort of the, the line that, that we're drawing there. Um, you know, in, in, in another example of this, there was a little boy in, in Pennsylvania, a 10 year old um, who, um, again, was living with his grandfather. Uh, his grandfather was taking care of an elderly, elderly woman who was in her late 90s. Um, the little boy was playing uh, video games. Uh, the woman yelled at him to turn, turn off the, the TV or turn it down. Uh, he picks up her cane, you know, hits her. She falls over in her wheelchair, has a heart attack and dies. Um, they arrest this little boy, uh, not in the juvenile system. They, they actually arrest him and detain him in an adult jail. Uh, so what that means for listeners who are listening in is that they had to place this child in solitary confinement because that was the only place he would be safe. So they had to keep him in, uh, in, in an adult jail, removed from everyone else. Lawyers were bringing him coloring books. His lawyers would go to meet with him and he had his orange jumpsuit on and he said to them, this is my Halloween costume because it happened around the time that Halloween was. Um, and the international community was just aghast of like, what is happening where you have a 10 year old in an adult jail and his lawyers are bringing him coloring books for God's sakes. And, you know, again, this has happened because in Pennsylvania, uh, they allow children, you know, as young as 10 years old to potentially be tried as an adult, right? So we're talking about elementary. So when we begin to talk about the school to prison pipeline too, right? Like these are examples where, you know, we don't have these minimum ages set and we allow children um, in these very extreme circumstances to be tried and prosecuted as an adult. Another example, and this is a more high profile case um, that people are more familiar with, um, the Central Park Five case, right? Ava DuVernay had a great, um, uh, miniseries uh, uh, a few years ago on, on Netflix about this. Uh, but everything that she portrayed in there was very, very much real, what happens to kids in the justice system. Uh, and one of the big problems is that when kids are arrested, um, and this happens in just about every state across the country, you as a parent 
All right, imagine your child being arrested. Do not have a right to be notified in most instances. Your child can be interrogated without you being notified, uh, without them being properly apprised of, uh, of their rights in an age-appropriate way where a child would understand, although I would argue that no child can fully understand their rights. That's why it's important to have children represented by legal counsel at the point of arrest and for their parents to be involved at the point that they're arrested as well. Um, but the Central Park Five case is another example of a human rights abuse that happened to those children by the mere fact that their parents were not notified that they'd been arrested and that they had not been given immediate access to counsel before they were interrogated or before they may waive their Miranda rights. So these are just three examples of cases that happen every single day in America where we don't have a minimum age for prosecuting children, even in the juvenile justice system. Sometimes we have minimum ages for a prosecution of adult court that are so low that we allow uh, elementary and very young middle schoolers to be prosecuted as adults where they face the exact same punishments such as life without parole or their mandatory minimum sentences. Um, and then when kids are arrested, uh, we don't have enhanced due process protections for them where their parents are notified or they have the ability to consult with legal counsel before uh, they waive the Miranda rights. And so, you know, this is this and this is just sort of the beginning of the process, right? This isn't even getting in to what happens to kids later on down the line when, you know, we're talking about kids being placed in adult jails and prisons. We had a case last year um, where we uh, were able to get a mother um, to present to Speaker Pelosi and Leader Hoyer around the House passed um, Heroes Act. Uh, because her son, her 16-year-old son, was being held in an adult jail in uh, an adult cell uh, with a 40-year-old man. Uh, for folks that aren't familiar, there's something called the Prison Rape Elimination Act. This was passed in the early part of the uh, 21st century uh, to stop prison rape. And, you know, it became the butt of a lot of jokes for a long time. But what most people don't realize is that uh, the people who are raped in our prisons oftentimes are children. The children were the ones who were being raped because we were placing them in these facilities with older adult men and older adult women who were much stronger than them, much more physical than them, had a, you know just knew more about the system, and would oftentimes abuse them. And so we have we had the situation where um, we had this boy, 16 year old, who was placed in adult jail in violation of the Prison Rape and Elimination Act. No child should ever be placed in an adult jail or an adult prison. But on any given night in America, there are 4,500 children under the age of 18 who are in adult jails and prisons all across the country. There's only th uh, three states that prohibit the practice. Every other state allows children to be placed in these facilities, which is, again, uh, one of the most egregious forms of a human rights violation happening against our children. Well, there, the issue is not only multifaceted, but it's, it's huge. And uh, I guess what I would want to ask you in the remaining minutes we have is how optimistic are you, say, about Sarah's Law, which, which covers much of this? And uh, where, do you, where do you see us, say, five years down the road? And uh, as I said, we only have a few minutes left, so go ahead. Yeah, no, thank you for that question, Harry. It's you're right, and it is multifaceted and it's highly complex, and these issues are interrelated, right? And so, um, and that's why it requires a lot of public education on our part, a lot of work, and a lot of advocacy. Um, the work that still needs to be done, just to be quite honest. Uh, but I, I am hopeful. You know, we re successfully ran a version of Sarah's Law in Virginia uh, in 2020. 
that law was it was morphed. Um, prosecutors, I think some of the common pushback that we get is the same pushback we got from the Commonwealth attorneys uh, last year, which was, you know, we don't want to we don't want to encourage from a public policy standpoint uh, vigilantism. That was <laughs> sort of their their thought process, which is, you know, uh, we can respectfully disagree with sort of, you know, whether or not that would actually happen. We don't believe that that would, but even if it did, and it was against somebody who, you know, essentially abused the child previously, um, you know, it, we think that that's something the court should take into account. Nevertheless, this was a concern of the prosecutors. Uh, so instead of, you know, crafting the bill around sort of that language around child sex crime victims, um, you know, we were able to work with the Commonwealth attorneys to actually broaden it so that uh, judges, whenever they're sentencing children now in, in adult court, uh, have to consider trauma and they are empowered to deviate from any mandatory minimum sentence. So it didn't go as far as we would have liked to have allowed judges to reverse wave those children back into the juvenile justice system. Um, but it did accomplish the other two things that we were trying to accomplish, which was Sarah, with Sarah's law, which was unshackle the hands of judges to deviate from any mandatory minimum and allow them to suspend any portion otherwise required sentence. And now this is for every child in Virginia, not just children who can demonstrate that they were victims of, of sex crimes. And so it was a huge monumental victory in Virginia. Virginia was the first state to do this, to you know allow judges to deviate from any mandatory minimum. Delegate Vivian Watts had a very powerful op-ed talking about cases like Sarah's and Alexis's. Um, and the bill had pretty tremendous bipartisan support. It didn't pass unanimously, but we had a number of Republicans and Democrats that came together to get behind it, which was you know an incredible thing to see happen. And, um, you know, and, and just this year, Maryland followed suit. Maryland followed Virginia's lead and passed another law allowing the judges to deviate from mandatory minimums. And so I think this idea around children and the trauma that they've experienced in the justice system and the need to give judges the ability to account for that trauma is beginning to take hold more and more. We have a bill in Congress that was recently introduced by Congressman Westerman, where it's, a, it's Sarah's law is a part of it. And then it's also allowing judges to also deviate from more mandatory minimums for all kids, regardless of whether they were a child sex crime victim or not. And so, um, so I am hopeful that this is going to be something that we continue to see sort of the slow chipping away from uh, these harsh punishments that have, you know, have usually been the norm for kids. And um, I'm also hopeful that we're going to even, you know, be able to ex extend Sarah's law to full uh, legal defense um, under the law so that, um, you know, people in Sarah's situation, you know, don't go into the system at all, but instead, you know, have this full legal defense to, um, you know, the, 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 the homicidal act, if you will, uh, so that the focus becomes more and more treatment and services and not locking these kids up for extended periods of time. So I'm very hopeful that, um, you know, we'll be able to make progress. And in five years, I hope to see, you know, at least 10 to 15 more states enact provisions that are similar in substance to Sarah's law so that we can, again, begin to chip away more and more at uh, these extreme punishments that our children are getting, particularly those that have been exposed to high amounts of trauma in their lives. Thank you so much, James. You've kind of revived my optimism and uh, that's a good thing. Our system needs to be changed and made so much more compassionate for children in particular. And I think after talking to you and Sarah, I, I, feel, I feel hopeful. So thank you again for your time and your openness about your own story and your 
telling us about the work that you're doing. That is certainly groundbreaking. So thank you so much for joining us today. And uh, I hope my listeners come away with a, a whole new view of what's happening to kids in, in our justice system. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Thanks, Harriet.